Welcome to the first installment of 3DR's Life After Gravity podcast series. My name is Roger Sollenberger. I'm communications manager here at 3DR, and every other week I'll be bringing you a conversation with leading thinkers and interesting people uh, inside the drone industry, of course, but also in related fields, uh, physicists, policy experts, entertainers, basically anyone interesting that I can come up with an excuse for tying somehow into the 3DR story. Uh, this first episode is a conversation with 3DR CEO Chris Anderson. Chris, many of you may know, is widely regarded as one of the visionary thinkers of this century. He's a New York Times best-selling author, was editor-in-chief at Wired Magazine for about a dozen years before leaving to come home 3DR in 2012, uh, and is to a great extent responsible for the global rise of consumer drone technology. He founded DIYDrones.com in 2007, which is now one of the biggest hubs of drone development in the world. But it all started with building a drone at his kitchen table with his kids. A great story that's already widely documented in which I'm sure at this point he's tired of retelling. So in this conversation, we just unpack that aha moment and take up pressing issues facing the drone industry today. We'll talk 3DR and the genesis and future of drone technology, uh, storytelling, manufacturing in China, and uh, the broader trend of automation, just uh, a whole lot of stuff. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did having it. And without further ado, a conversation with Chris Anderson. You mentioned that you don't want to rehash the uh, creation myth of 3DR, and I won't make you do that. Um, but you do mention that aha moment, right, at your table. And I take it that that moment was mostly intuitive, though I could be wrong about that. But uh, with the years you have between then and now, I was wondering if you could unpack that one moment uh, for us and you know, tell us what you saw or felt synthesizing uh, and what you may have recognized even in your subconscious. Yeah, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about that moment, um, 2007, you know, just sitting around with the kids trying to think of something interesting to do with, um, you know, Lego Mindstorms, as it were, uh, in that case. And, um, you know, the, the, this, by the way, is a like a normal weekend, you know, okay, let's let's come up with a project, let's make the project interesting for me and interesting for them. And, you know, every other weekend has ended in failure. Um, this one weirdly <laughs> didn't. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to ask why. Um, and I think what happened is sort of just the right place at the right time. Um, you know, it, it was, it was, there was this thing in front of us, this robotics kit, and um, it seemed full of potential. There were all these sensors and there was this processor and, you know, an ARM processor is pretty powerful. And the, and the programming tool is really easy to use and had these mechanical parts. And it's like, wow, okay, so I can do this, right? It's, you know. On one level, it's Lego, so it's very approachable. On another level, it's really kind of sophisticated stuff that I'd never worked with before. You know, make you know having you know using a computer to read sensors and and, and move actuators, um, and you know, and it was just that the example was so boring. The example they had us do was so boring that I sort of struggled to come up with something cooler. And um, you know, I thought, well, what if a robot could fly? And then we, and then we fit. and. You know, literally the process was Google flying robot. And uh, the first result was drone and Google drone. And the first result was autopilot and then Google autopilot. And they kind of got into the a little bit about what is an autopilot. And, um, you know, I think the virtue of it is that I could have, you know, I could have just stopped at that point and said, well, that sounds hard. But instead it kind of, you know, the overall concept of like a computer that flies a plane 
using some sensors seems so compatible with the plastic parts in front of me that we just sort of sat around and, and did it. And, you know, the it didn't work and it wasn't very good. But the, the very fact that you could sort of make that leap from – you know, Googling flying robots, you know, ultimately ending up with autopilot and then, you know, and then trying to replicate it there on the dining room table with plastic parts was liberating. It was kind of a reflection of that year, 2007, which was the key year. That was the year that um, the Wii controller came out and people started playing around with accelerometers. It was the year that uh, 3D printing started with the RepRap project. Arduino started with sort of, you know, ability to control, do physical computing. Um, it was the year that the maker movement um, started with maker fairs. Um, and um, most importantly, although we didn't know it at the time, it was the year the iPhone came out. I mean, obviously we knew the iPhone came out, but we didn't know why that was relevant mm -hmm. at the time. Years later, we discovered that the reason those sensors, those MEM sensors that were in the in the um, the Lego Mindstorms and things like the ARM processor and the Bluetooth stacks and all that, all the reason those things were now cheap and easy enough to be in toys was that the smartphone industry's economies of scales had made them, you know, had been producing them in such volumes that um, that they were now just sort of spreading out in, in into the world in other places, including including toys. And so, you know, this was really an artifact of the smartphone revolution. We just didn't know it at the time. And it was clear that 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 that, that spring of two thousand seven was the year where anybody who was paying attention suddenly got the same idea. This parallel discovery of drones are a thing I could do. Mm -hmm. And you know, previously academics have been playing around with this, and you know, maybe some ho RC hobbyists. But this was not—we weren't academics, and we weren't RC hobbyists. This is like regular people who were, you know, who had their antennas up. Um, all got the same idea at the same time. And you know, this happens all the time, by the way, that these signals go out into the ether, and that everybody instantaneously sees, oh, that chip and this wireless, you know, device and that software could go together, and you could make. Blank, and it could be, you know, it could be Internet of Things or an autonomous car. In our case, it was just like anybody who was paying attention that spring knew that you could make a DIY drone. There had been a disturbance in the force, and um, you know, so so I would say that that, that you know, at the end of that session when we made the autopilot, I think it had gone pretty much like like every other session with the kids, which is that we we thrown together a little bit of you know we'd done a little project and we were, you know we had a thing sitting on the table that's kind of more or less moved, and. Um, you know, but I, 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 it's not the whole concept of Lego and autopilot. Just putting these two words together was kind of Lego autopilot. How, how is that even possible, etc. And, and you know, that was enough. I mean, I was just like stunned. You know, to be able to, you know, sit there at the dining room table and have like a, you know, just another Saturday, you know, afternoon. We were like, let's 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 make something, and end up with something that maybe the world had never seen before. Just should not happen. But the fact that it looked like kind of almost, if you squinted and looked sideways, almost resembled an actual, you know, what an actual drone would have, which is to say sensors and GPS and intelligence and software and actuation and all that. That that was that's where I got chills. And and you know, it was it wasn't the act of thinking about it or even sort of the concept. It was the act of actually doing it. And that's why I set up DIY drones is simply to start asking the question, what the heck? How what just changed that made people like me able to do things like that? You started, right, because uh, you were curious, basically, is why you started DIY Drones, right? You were sort of uh, crowdsourcing some research, right, I would imagine? Yeah. Um, and so I can understand why that 
open community would be really helpful at the beginning. I'd like to know when you decide to commit to it uh, as a business, as a company, and also why does 3DR continue to bet on open source? Yeah, open source is is obviously bigger than just than just us. And open source is a subclass of something we call open innovation, which is really just the idea of again do it together. Um, that you know many hands make light work, and that's you know collectively we can do more than any one company can do alone. That is the story of the web. Um, that is the, obviously the story of all you know. The internet runs on open source software. Essentially, you know you you know everything we do today is based on you know some form of you know Linux or TCP or you know you know Chrome, Android. You, you, you name yeah, it. Um, yeah. So, so it, you know, you know, open source is now more than twenty years old as, as an industry, and you know, it doesn't need, you know, it, it, it's sort of like you know, evolution or democracy. Sure, it, it's like eighty percent of the internet, I think, runs. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so the notion that open source is ascendant into sort of the the, the right innovation model for the twenty first century is is no longer in in doubt. So that was almost almost was not a choice it was mm -hmm. kind of you know there's only one way to innovate and that's and that's uh, open innovation now you know how you handle that exactly you know on what level the open are which level are open, which license do you choose, how do you organize the community, how do you lead the community, what's the governance structure, you know, um, how do you um, how do you do the things that open source doesn't do particularly well, like ease of use and documentation, then how do you translate open source software to open source hardware, which is initially what we did, and then from open source software to open source hardware, and then also, you know, traditional closed source, you know, consumer electronics, those are the tricky um, parts. But, you know, we believe, um, as, as does everybody else here, in Silicon Valley, that open that platforms are are the, the winning innovation model of the 21st century. You know, iOS is a platform, Android's a platform. Yeah. You know, the you know web is a platform in some sense. And we believe that you know the reasons platforms win is because they make it easy. You know, to to contribute, they make it easy for them to to contribute. You know, at maybe you know, app level or you know or at the vehicle level in this case. But you know the the, the um, you know the, the the success model of our era is what's called you know the architecture of participation, making it you know lowering the barriers to entry for people to collectively contribute without being organized to do it. Now obviously you have organization in different layers, but the, you know the great thing about like the iPhone App Store is that you know anybody can write an app or or, or Google Play. Anybody can write an app mm -hmm. and anybody can write a cloud service that works with those apps. Now you know they may not be good, may not work, and in that case the marketplace will reject them. But there's no you know limit on 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 creativity, yeah. and that's what platforms enable. Uh, yeah, and I think as testament to the success of our platform, it seems like you know when I curate the download every week, there's a new product or a new service built on you know the flight code that our open source community helped develop. And I was wondering which to you are you know some of the coolest kickstarters. You seem to back one you know all the time. I'm not sure how many you've got your your hands in, but it's you know you're supporting them pretty often. So like you know if you could talk about some of those projects that most excite you, uh, and then backing. Kickstarter, what or Indiegogo, or whatever. What what do you look for? Well, you know, um, so Indiegogo and Kickstarter projects using our platform are just one example of platform adoption. That's people turning into a physical, into a you know a physical product. I'm actually logging in right now, so I can. Um, so I can uh, remind myself exactly which ones I back. There, there have indeed been a lot. Um, the way any platform measures success is adoption. Um, it's the only thing that matters. If people like it enough to use it, that's 
you know that that's success. Now, how they how you make money from it, you know how you how you establish the um, the quality of those things. That you know that's another question. But you know fundamentally, it's 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 are people using it? And in this case, you know, adoption can consist of a number of things. They can consist of you know putting the software the, the you know the software in a, another vehicle. So like for example, a lot of the um, follow me drones like the uh, like AirDog and the Hexa Hexa Plus um, uh, or even Lily for that matter. Um, you know, used elements of this platform to create a unique consumer product. That's fantastic. Um, others um, uh, go further and they say, well, it's less about the products, more about the service. And so these would be companies like like uh, like, like Drone Deploy or or or, um, or Skycatch who are focused on specific application. You know, it's all about the data, or it's all about the you know, it's it's sold not as a product as a service. Um, other other forms of um, of, uh, of adoption can include writing apps. That are compatible with uh, with the platform, and you know some of those apps could run on mobile, some of them could run on the vehicle itself. Um, and uh, we recently released something called DroneKit, which is our SDK, which is designed to make that easier. And um, you know, uh, DroneKit's going to get better and better. And we would, I, I'd love to see something that approaches an app store, where people don't have to, you know, touch the flight code. They don't have to build a drone. They don't have to, you know, even sell a service. They just have to write a little app that adds one cool feature to this stack the way you know your iphone apps add cool features to your to your phone and um and all those are elements of adoption when you look at the the ones you know that i that are my, my favorites i mean i'm all, the ones that are they're my favorites are the ones that that do something that i it never occurred to me to do some 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 application Mm-hmm. Uh, that I that I hadn't thought of. Um, so I'm just going to look at. Um, I'll just look at, for example, my my Kickstarter um, uh, ones of of recents. Uh, so um, let's see. This just the ones in the last month. I backed um, something called POSIX, which is indoor positioning. This is kind of like a um, um, like GPS, but inside uh-huh. using um, ultra wideband radio. That was super cool. Um, works with our our platform. Um, so that allows you to do uh, basically drones inside. Um, the next thing I backed was Sprite, which is a um, it's it looks like a can like a water bottle almost, and it's got these coaxial props, and it's a way to basically carry a little uh, cam- camera drone um, with you that you could just sort of throw, and it would just you know hover in place, get a great aero picture, and then and then shrink back into something the size of a water bottle that you could put back <laughs> in your in your backpack. Also based on on our platform, um, um, I backed um, uh, something uh, called uh, called Chip, which is a fan um, an amazing um, a nine dollar kind of you know Wi-Fi Bluetooth you know processor on a, on a board um, made locally here actually from a team here in Oakland, um, and uh, I just you know I. I we, we actually are going to be using it with some of our, our test projects. But the point was that, that you know, $9 for what is essentially, you know, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's basically laptop quality power um, five years ago and it's now a $9 chip. And just what's going on in the system on a chip or SOC or a system on a module stuff going on, that's that's incredibly powerful for the next generation of drones. That, that those technologies, you know, lots of processing power, lots of memory lots of wireless built in for something as cheap as $9 is how the next is how we're going to get a generation of drones that are, that are essentially like dust mm-hmm. they're you know they cost they cost you know 10 10 bucks each we make them by the you know by the hundreds of thousands you just spread them out and let them swarm do the job um and you know, then I went down. I did uh, back to Splash Drone, which is a waterproof um, drone that uh, is based on our platform as well. And that's just like the last six. That's like the last six things I, I backed. Um, 
you know, so, so each one of those is either a technology, which I think is going to be powerful for advancing drone yeah. applications, or it's a it's a it's a use of the platform. Um, in this case, you know, Sprite as being a portable one, splash uh, splash drone as being waterproof. It sort of extends the platform to some domain where it's not currently easy to use. You mentioned uh, several times when you were talking about the genesis of the company, like, oh, I can do this, or we can do this. This moment, you know, where we realized that we had uh, the power to create something pretty new and extraordinary. And I was thinking that uh, with Solo, with our latest product, that lots of people are going to have similar moments, right? They're going to have their own, oh, I can do this now sort right. of moment. And right. And yeah, and so it becomes, and it's becoming a storytelling device. Oh, I can tell my life story from exactly. the Exactly. So yeah. I was wondering that as, you know, from your background as a writer and editor, as a storyteller by trade, um, when Solo marks this, this new moment about telling a story, what to you makes a good story? It, this is the golden age of personal storytelling. I mean, this is the universal human desire to tell your own story. And by your own story, I mean the story of of your your world, your friends, your family, your surroundings. You know, we have no more interesting subject than ourselves and our world. And this story is not going to be told by Hollywood and or the New York Times. It's only going to be told by us. And we now have the tools to do it well. So, you know, we started by doing it well with text and sharing it well. I and mean, we democratize the tools of publishing, and then we democratize the tools of distribution. And then we then we got, you know, then we got better tools to you know, to, you know, writing was one thing, but now, you know, then we got better tools to take photographs and then we got better tools to to take video. The one thing we're missing the one thing steven spielberg has that we don't have is is like the boom the crane the helicopter the director of photography you know the ability to 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 get a perspective beyond the reach of your own arm and the barriers to that to date have been like well you know crane boom director of photography etc but then you know once we once you know once the notion of a flying you know vehicle became possible it was like well skill i don't know how to fly i don't I'm not good at it, and if I get it wrong, it's going to crash, and it's like expensive. And then it was like, okay, well now drones made it easier to kind of fly. Maybe I could do that. It still seems kind of hard. There's just like these sticks that I got to use. That seems kind of hard. And then it's like, okay, it's up there. But then it's like super shaky, and like that doesn't look like Hollywood. And then we got gimbals, and it was like stable. And then it's okay. I got, I got it in the gimbal. It looks it look amazing. It's stable footage. But then they're like, well, actually, that doesn't look like Hollywood either. Turns out there's a like you know there's a right way and a wrong way to take aerial video. And, you know, but this is now getting into like the aesthetics of aerial video. And when you think about what it actually takes to fly a drone, to control a camera, and to know you know, to visualize or to know all this stuff, you don't have enough hands to do it and to say nothing of skill. And then you get to the next level, which is like, okay, I finally figured out all that stuff. But the problem is, is that I don't know, I don't want to take a video of other people. I want to take a video of my life. And I'm the guy with, you know, with, you know, with the furrowed brow, you know, hunched over a controller trying to get all these things working. I'm actually the photographer, not the actor. I want to be the actor in my life story. And then you realize, okay, this is what software is for this is what robots are for this you know we got to get from behind the camera and get in front of the camera and the way we're going to do that is we're going to let the we're going to let the camera do the work you push a button and this you know this 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 sort of steven spielberg and software takes control of the camera and gets the shot and that's and that's what solo was designed to do was to basically take all those barriers to entry all those sort of necess necessary skills and turn them into you know, a smart drone that um, that uh, that allows you to be the subject of your life story and and get something that really does look cinematic with no skill required. 
Yeah, and I think you know what you what you point to here is that you know editing also makes a story. As an editor, you know that, right? Um, that you know even when you do get the film and Spielberg gets all of his shots together, you know everything changes when it comes time to edit that footage. Uh, the story itself might entirely change. So yeah, the editing sounds like you know the next the next frontier, the next barrier um, for the software as far as personal storytelling goes. Um, it, you know, Google Photos has this great uh, feature. I think it's on 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 Android and, and iOS, but at least it is on Android, where, you know, you take photos, you go on a trip, let's say, you go to, you go to the beach, whatever, you take you take photos, yeah. and then it it takes, and at the end of the day, it creates a story. And it says, it says you know, day at the beach. It automatically creates this, and it takes basically the GPS information from your phone and the stories, and it kind of pre-selects the ones that say, sorry, the photos, it pre-selects the ones that seem best, puts the photos on the map, and then creates this sort of automatic story. Now, is it really a story in that it's like once upon a time? No, but it do- is a chronology. Yeah. And um, it does sort of pick highlights from that day in something that feels like a, a mini story. And I think we can do that with drones. What are some of the most pressing challenges facing uh, us as a company or facing uh, even the, the drone in- industry uh, at large? Um, it, you know, ease of use is the killer app. You know, I'm you know I, I'm sitting here in Berkeley at our offices, and with the exception of our own drones, which are flying by pretty often, there are no other vehicles in the air. Not even like manned aircraft. It is a completely empty blue sky. You know, wh- why is that? And the answer is it's still too hard to put things in the air. Um, it's too expensive. They're too big. It's too dangerous. It requires too much skill. Um, now there are cameras everywhere. Everybody in this room has a has a has a camera in their pocket. Yeah. Um, you know, we all have cameras on our on our on our computers, and there's cameras on the streets, and there's cameras in the cars. And so I'm looking as I look out here, looking at at you know hundreds of thousands of cameras, but none of them are in the air. And it's just that's crazy. You know, there's a reason why we're called 3D robotics is because the third dimension is completely unexplored. <laughs> you know, with the exception of satellites and the occasional manned aircraft, the third dimension um, of our world has been largely ex- unexplored because it's too hard. So making it easier to put cameras in the air is is the biggest challenge. And when I say easier, I mean you know not just what we've done already, which is push a button and it goes in the air, but you know, um, making them smaller, lighter, cheaper. Um, you know, making drones act like cameras, not like not like you know helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have the interface feel more like a camera interface, pinch and zoom. You know, um, you almost don't care how the camera got up there. Um, you know, we have all these other interfaces like video game interfaces. You know, with with um, you know with joysticks, etc. Those are kind of very intuitive. We need to make 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 drones as easy to use as a video game, as easy to use as a camera, and and as safe. And that and that is you know and that is you know that's going to be you know, um, the industry's challenge for years to come so that drones really are smart enough to be essentially something you don't have to think about. Yeah, uh, it goes from looking up at them, right, uh, to looking down at what's in your hand and treating it as a camera. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the, when, when you, you know, when we when we put the, our drones in the hands of users, the number one sign of success is do they look down rather than up? If they're looking up, they're not. They're not feeling comfortable. They they're they're still worried. If they're looking down, they're doing what they're supposed to do, which and is the drone's on doing what it's supposed to do too. And they can exactly. they, they trust the drone. I know quite a lot of people publicly express fears about drones, whether you know uh, rational or not. And I was wondering if you have any fears about the emerging drone technology at all. Um. Fear is not is not the word I would choose. I'm I'm, I'm fear is just I'm just for whatever reason I don't seem to have a big fear gene. Um, uh, I 
this is yeah, this is not new, right? I mean, yeah. I I um, you know my career started with the internet, and you know I spent I spent mostly my entire professional career with people sort of saying, pe- by people I mean journalists mostly, <laughs> saying you know immediately jumping to the what could what could possibly go wrong. Yes, and it's like as is the case today. As is the case today. So, you know, take any random technology. And I'm sure, I mean, you know, if you go back to the 70s with the, like computers, it was like, you know, the artificial brain is here. What if the government, you know, controls us? And then it was like the internet and it's like, you know, out of control network, you know, undermining state, you know, the ability of the telecoms networks to control us. And then it was like, and it goes on and on. Yeah. Um, I do think it, though that, that today there's like, uh, it's so polarizing and it's so public, you know, at the same time where I think those other uh, instances you point to are, you know, they're more underground, more of the uh, cognoscenti would have those, would entertain those, fear, those ideas. Fear of, fear of computers was, was a, uh, was a time magazine cover story. Well, it's just hard to believe today that people used to be afraid of computers. Remember, remember, like the Orwells, you know, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, sure. Big Brother. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, you know, fear of cameras. You know, fear that the internet would be spying on us. I mean, this is this was like this is big. Though that was in, the, in those days bigger than fear of drones. And today it looks completely silly. Um, you know, I'm much more afraid of anonymous, you know, than I am <laughs> of, of the USA. Hacker team. Um, so yeah, I- I- exactly. So. Um, so I think what we're seeing is a very natural sort of you know instinct by some by some in the population to fear anything new, yeah. um, and it, and it's not to say that you know drones can't be used for ill in the same way that computers and, and the internet can be used for ill, but you know by and large they're not. By and large, they're used for good. And what I'm concerned about is not malicious use, although there will, obviously will be some. What I'm concerned about is what I, what I've sort of jokingly called mass jackassery, which is just which is just unthinking irresponsibility. Yeah. Uh, because because drones are so easy to use, we've made it possible for for people to use a thought use them thoughtlessly, without thinking about oh well, am I near an airport? Should I be near? You know, if I am near an airport, should I be? Um, is it okay to fly over people? Is it okay to, you know, to fly in this national park? Is it okay to fly in Manhattan? And you know, people aren't trained to know the answers to that. Nor, nor you know, really can they be. So instead, you know, I think our our technology ought to make it easier to help people make smart choices about responsible use. So, you know, we don't, they shouldn't, if they're in Manhattan and taking off, you know, on, on you know, in Times Square, I think our drone should sort of say, uh, no, <laughs> you can't fly here. And uh, the reason you can't fly here is the following reason. It's, you know, populated area, you know, whatever, um, FAA regulations. And, and it should just ping the cloud and should say, um, that is, you know, uh, you know, here's, you know, here's here's the reason why we're not going to let you fly here, or might be someone else. We're like, that's great. You're in a you're in a you know in your park far away from people. Go for it. Or it might be like, hey, you know what? Um, you're within three miles of an airport. Um, you know, here's what the regulations are about that. You should be advised and you know let, let inform people about about the regula- you know the regulations. Uh-huh. The reality is, people don't know that they're three miles from airport. You you may not know whether you're three miles from airport right now. We can help. As this continues to get easier to use, and as uh, like you're saying, the apps you know get easier to use, um, will the flight coding community change? I know right now it's kind of a, a narrow, um, a relatively recondite uh, type of language, right? Um, and uh, very few people worldwide actually do flight code. 
yeah, do you, yeah. how do you see this changing? Are there going to be uh, in-house drone coders, for example, for, for, different, uh, for different organizations or companies? Uh, what, what does that landscape look like in the future as this evolves? Yeah, I mean, the, the way you phrase that is kind of interesting. So, you know, back in the day, um, it really was about flight code. Um, and, you know, to, to program a drone, you had to, you know, modify the flight code. And that's how I got started. And that's, that's you know, our community still, still does a lot of that. Um, but, you know, things have changed a lot since then. And today, flight code should be as no more important to programming than the Linux kernel is, which is to say there's a very small number of people who work on the Linux kernel and a very large number of people who build apps and services on top of the Linux kernel. Android and iOS, you know, all either run on the Linux or the Unix kernel. Mm -hmm. um, so, so our, you know, our flight code teams, and there's two, the APM and PX4 teams, are big and very robust, and you know, and have you know, have never been doing more coding. But we basically don't want to, you know, to to push everybody into that level. It's very complex. Um, there's a very structured process by which by which uh, contributions are evaluated and incorporated. We have a very kind of clear command and control structure around here, the project leaders, etc. That is the wrong layer, um, and that's what we created, a uh, drone kit, um, because you should never touch the flight code. Instead, you should be working with the, you know, the flight code via API. It's the same way that you know when you're running it, when you write an app for Android, you actually don't touch Android and you really don't touch Linux. Instead, you write an app that runs on top of Android. And so DroneKit is designed to do that. These apps can run on the vehicle with a companion computer on Solo or others. They can run on the phone, iOS or Android, or they can run in the cloud. And it's just Python over standard APIs, and it looks super easy compared to, you know, to, um, to actually touching the flight code. Um, and so, the, so we basically, when you think of drone programming, don't think about flight code anymore. Assume that it's a black box. It works. Um, it's, you know, it's got some very, you know, clear um, interfaces by, you know, by which you, like, like any operating system, Windows or OS X, um, you don't, you don't need to touch it, and um, and 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 if it goes wrong, you're not going to undermine the you know the core flight ability of the drone. Mm -hmm. It's uh, protected in the same way that you're you know that you're you're not allowed to you know to, to crash the, the Linux kernel. Um, protecting people from the flight code is, is a great way to let the, the flight code <laughs> focus on what they do best. Yeah. So uh, then you're saying that people would be programming using uh, such languages that they already know. Do you see then uh, you know different organizations having like an in-house drone uh, drone wing? No pun intended there. Yeah. Well, I, I do. You know, in the same way that people you know um, you know build apps for the web. You know, cloud services, they build apps that you assume HTTP, you know, HTML, you know, TCP IP. Um, you, know, you know, there's just kind of well-established web programming frameworks. Um, that's what I expect will happen with drones. Um, it's absolutely strong. It is the way that programming works today for almost everybody, which is to say you, you don't have to invent the entire Internet. <laughs> you just connect to it. Uh, you know, via via the absolutely standard protocols that everyone can uh, you know everyone can use, yeah. and then you add one little bit exactly where you need it. What is our drone company looking like today? What does it look to you like uh, inside 3DR? Maybe uh, you know where are we pointed? Well, right now we're 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 focused on providing the best consumer drone experience in the world with Solo, um, uh, the you know the ability to do what we talked about earlier, which is you know automate the cinematic experience. We call that smart shots um, to make it easier to connect it to you know to a more a mobile led experience connected to the cloud and just just 
just making it the smartest drone on the planet, um, largely as a consumer drone. Um, we have equal interest in commercial use, but we think that this is being driven by what we call the consumerization of the enterprise trend that we've seen so far, so so much elsewhere. Um, so in the same way that the most popular you know, enterprise phone is an iPhone. We think the most popular enterprise drone will be will be a Solo or the Solo or, or some variant of the Solo family on the grounds that, you know, that, that ease of use is a universal good. Um, you know, companies want it as well as consumers. Um, and so the fact that it's an open platform, uh, meaning it's open at the, you know, the insides are open, you know, the, the, the actual, you know, companion computer, the interfaces, the accessory bay, the app layer, the cloud layer, because it's open, it's very easy to turn the solo consumer vehicle into a, a very sophisticated commercial uh, vehicle. And um, we think that uh, this is a place where platforms actually win uh, because so many, because all enterprise uses are different. Um, you know, corn is not cows, is not rice, is not you know, is are not nuts. That's uh-huh. um, just agriculture. And so, what you need there is is that very. So it's very easy that specialists in every one of those domains can can uh, can you know, add something to the platform. And that's why that's why open platforms win there. And then you know, then uh, you'll see the ecosystem you know around the platform start to build. You already have this is already the leading or one of the leading platforms in the world, especially um, other drone makers um, uh, using this software. Uh, you're going to start to see more cloud services come. You know, like drone deploy that I mentioned earlier, um, building on this platform, and then you're going to start to see more interesting sensors and cameras um, attached onto the platform, what we call the Mate Solo platform, and that then that then it becomes the ecosystem by which we really measure success. What about the uh, the company as it is today? Like when you walk into the office, uh, what do you feel? Um, what do you see around you? How does the the startup culture feel to you? Sure. Well, I'm speaking to you from our, our Berkeley um, Engineering um, Center and headquarters. And when you walk in, what you see is a really it's a it's a buzz of engineering activity by and large. You're seeing sort of equal parts um, computer science, um, so a lot of computer vision, artificial intelligence, um, sensor um, and analysis, um, um, a lot of control theory, working on things like gimbals and, and copters themselves. You see a lot of electrical um, engineers working on you know high-end wireless transmission, um, cameras, um, digital signal processing, um, uh, you know, CAN-based motor control, you know, again, very sophisticated, um, uh, you know, the hardware side. And then on the mechanical side you see you see engineers working on um, uh, making these uh, vehicles lighter stronger um, quieter um, less vibration um, uh, e- cheaper easier to make um, um, and um, and uh, you know by and large integrating with those other elements uh, best and it's not just the vehicles themselves but we also do um, you know uh, some of the accessories that go, go with the vehicles, the controller, um, and uh, even things like our retail um, kiosks, uh, which are which are part of the product line as as well. So what you see here is basically the cutting edge of of all three disciplines: computer science, electrical engineering, and mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And uh, every now and then, there's some business guys like me who who kind of you know l- lurk and and admire. But um, the usual desk is absolutely full of you know test equipment and circuit boards and you know three monitors full of full of code um, running, and um, it looks like a combination of maybe, um, you know, MIT and NASA. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it. That's what I see when I, when I walk into the Berkeley office, too. Uh, I also wanted to know, I mean, with Solo, this is our first venture into mass manufacturing. Um, so what is it like now to work in China and with Chinese manufacturers? What's this experience been like? Yeah, so we um, 
you know, we we um, have reached a scale where we needed to, you know, basically um, operate like a consumer electronics company, and that um, and today there's no place where you can get um, you know uh, this combination of supply chain components and and, and skills um, better than than uh, than China, in particular Shenzhen. Um, so that, that is the the capital of the drone manufacturing industry, and we are there as well. Um, what this means is that, you know, we work with the um, biggest consumer electronics makers um, in the world. Um, you know, the uh, the contract manufacturers that we work with, um, you know, next to them are they're the ones who are making, you know, the GoPros and the phones and everything else. And so, you know, our bet was that drones were were, were not going to look like the aerospace industry, you know, a plane minus a pilot. But instead, we're going to look like the smartphone industry, which is a, a phone with propellers. Um, and then as a result, we need to build the company, both the technologies we choose, the way we think and the um, and the way we make um, so that we um, you know we reflect best practice in consumer electronics and today best practice in consumer electronics is smartphones and um, you know we, when you look at our manufacturing lines they look just like a smartphone line except for there's those propellers. Thinking bigger, they fit into a broader uh, robotics trend, um, and I was wondering how you see that trend emerging. Uh, how you see, you know, a good capitalist uh, response to an emerging trend that might, you know, uh, disrupt entire industries, disrupt jobs, and in particular, how how drones fit into that trend. Right, right. So, so we are we are definitely part of the of the, of the rising trend of automation, and you know, um, uh, automation is designed, or especially robotics, are designed to do things that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. Um, in our case, um, it's a combination of dull and dangerous. Um, so, you know, holding and you know, putting cameras in the air for for you know for tens of minutes at a time is dull for sure. Um, especially if they have to be manually piloted, and dangerous if you happen to be a, a crappy pilot, as I am. Um, so just, you know, people shouldn't fly aircraft unless they want to. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, it should not be the necessary skill to get something in the air, um, and it's it's dull and dangerous. <laughs> and so, what we do is we just automate the things that people don't do well, so that we can focus human activity on the things they do do well. And what we do well is use our eye to spot a great shot, and to capture that moment, and to know what that moment is. What we don't do well is you know, and, and pilot um, a, a vehicle. Now, some of us do do that well, but most of us don't. Um, and so we automate the hard part so we can liberate the easy part. But again, you know, this this is a, a much broader a much broader trend, I think, um, and it does herald disruption in lots of spheres. Um, I was yeah, absolutely, it does. The, yeah. the, those those skies are going to be filled, and they're not going to be f- be filled by the aerospace industry. You know, it, it, it's an interesting um, question to say what happened to the typing pool. You know, you watch Mad Men, whatever, and there's this typing pool. Where did they go? The answer is, you know, some of them left the workforce. Others then moved upstream to become, you know, maybe analysts or maybe they became personal assistants or maybe they became accountants or I don't know. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it, they, they, they distributed and by and large, the ones that moved upstream uh, to use their brains more than their fingers um, uh, were, ba- were paid better, uh, were more challenged. Um, they became what we call symbolic analysts um, rather than just typists. And, um, you know, and they went from, you know, entering key punching in data to the spreadsheet to actually understanding the spreadsheet and 
Um, so, so this is absolutely normal. Every time automation takes something that we're not good at, whether it's you know physical labor or or monotonous labor, and replaces it with machine, it tends to liberate us to do things we are good at. It's like it's like that whole joke about, you know, how we shouldn't text and drive. We should totally text. We're good at texting. We just shouldn't drive. Great. Um, thanks. That's about all I've got for you, Chris. I appreciate you carving out this time for me. Terrific. Sorry about all the delays, and, uh, and thanks for your patience and waiting for me. It's no problem. I appreciate you indulging. Okay. Thanks. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye.